Let me invite you this morning to take a copy of God's Word. Uh, turn to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter number 4. Uh, we are continuing our steady uh, study through the, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we have come to chapter number 4, a passage that, at least a story that is very familiar uh, to us, uh, but yet its truths and implications are far reading. Um, let's begin reading in verse number 1, Mark chapter 4. Scripture says, again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him went with the, twelve, uh, with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And they're the ones sown on rocky ground. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then... When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. There are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. Was there a large crowd? That question is crucial criteria whereby our generation judges success or failure. We oftentimes attach significance, even legitimacy, to a large crowd. Controversy arose just shortly after the president's inauguration on the size of the crowd. One side said it was an enormous crowd, which meant that 
People were more excited about President Trump than they were President Obama. The other side said the crowd was small, which meant that people were not as excited about President Trump as they were President Obama. Inaugural size, the crowd at the inaugural inauguration meant something significant to people because our culture attaches significance to crowd size. The same is true in sports. If you go to a game and the sports arena or the stadium is filled, then people will say that's a successful organization. The crowd, enthusiastic, excited fans, means that things are going well. What is the one thing that a fan base does oftentimes to get the owner's attention? They stay at the house. Uh, It's embarrassing to watch at the end of the NFL if a fan base is disgruntled. They're playing in a 40 or 50 or 60,000 seat stadium with 10,000 people in it. We remember one of Joker Phillips' last games at Commonwealth. Uh, You couldn't get enough people to panel a jury in that game because uh, people had lost interest. And people said, look at the crowd. People don't care anymore. And oftentimes we even judge the success or the failure of a church based on crowd. You ask someone, how's your church doing? And the first thing their mind goes to is what? The crowd. Well, we've been having good turnouts. We've been having good crowds. Well, I'm not saying numbers aren't important. The book of Acts gives us several instances where numbers are recorded. They are important. But my question is this. What do we often say when the crowd dwindles? What do we say of a politician whose poll numbers are falling? What do we say of... Uh, of a team when their fan base stops showing up? What do people often say about a church when people don't come anymore? Oftentimes we say that there's something wrong and that failure has occurred and something needs to be changed. But let me ask you this. What would we say if 95% or greater of people just quit? I mean, what if... A crowd dwindles down to where there is just a handful when at one time there was more than what you could even count. What kind of leadership failure would have to take place in order for that to occur? Well, if we judge success and failure based on the size of a crowd, up to this point in Mark, Jesus has been extremely successful. Because one thing is evident, Mark has told us throughout his gospel, beginning in Mark chapter 2 verse 4 and going all the way through up to this point, that there is a crowd that follows Jesus everywhere he goes. In fact, Mark 3, 7 says that it was a great crowd. It was enormous. So great was the crowd that at times people could not even get into the same house that Jesus was in. So great was the crowd at times, Jesus would leave them and go up to a mountain by himself. The crowd was enthusiastic. The crowd was excited. And in this text, we find that Mark describes them in verse 1 as a very large crowd. And the crowd is so large that when Jesus starts to teach them, he can't just teach them standing. He's got to get in a boat. He's got to go out 
into the sea, sit on the boat and face the crowd so that the crowd can hear him whenever he speaks. In fact, if you look at Jesus' ministry and judge it the way the world judges success and failure, in Mark 4 at the beginning, the world would say Jesus is an enormous success. He is a glorious success. But we know something about this crowd. We know something about what's going to happen with this large group of people. What's going to happen to them? They're going to dwindle away. They're going to leave. They're not going to be there. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of them are going to go away and they're not going to follow Jesus. And so the same world that would say in Mark 4, Jesus is a success, is the same world that would look at Jesus later and say, who wants to follow a king who can't keep his kingdom together? Who wants to follow a man who loses more than he has? Who wants to follow Jesus? And so Jesus in this text knows exactly what's going on. He knows the temptation to be to be swallowed up in the euphoria of a crowd. He knows that there is a danger in looking just at the crowd and saying there is success, the kingdom is growing in mass. And he knows that the people who look at him from the, from the seashore will very soon turn their back, go away, never to follow him. And so what does he do? He gives a parable. Now what we have in our text is we have the second Mark sandwich in the Gospel of Mark. Last week I told you it's a writing device Mark uses. We just call it the sandwich. It's a fancy technical term. Uh, He starts out with one story. He interrupts it by injecting another storyline in. And then when he finishes the meat of the sandwich, he returns to the first story and completes it. And as the case was last week, so too it is this week, that the meat of the sandwich is the heart of the message and what you find let me just give you the outline quickly of this passage is you find in verses one through nine that Jesus is going to preach to the people and he shares a parable that's the bun of the story if you will of the passage verses 10 through 12 serve as the meat of the sandwich where Jesus is going to privately tell his disciples and those with them why he speaks in parables. And then in verses 13 through 20, you find the other bun as he brings it full circle and he gives the interpretation of the parable. And the parable is one that we are used to. The parable is one that we've heard before. It's the parable of the sower and the soils. But what we oftentimes don't think about is its relationship to the crowd and what Jesus is actually saying about the crowd and what it says to us. So here's what I want to do. I want want us to look at the text. It divides up nicely into three sections. And after I look at these three sections, I want to make some quick observations toward the end. So first, let's consider the telling of the parable in uh, verses 1 through 9. Again, Mark emphasizes that the crowd is very great in verse number one. And Jesus is on the boat and he is teaching and he is preaching to the crowd. Now, this is crucial 
Who is Jesus preaching to in verses 1 through 9? It's the entire crowd. He's preaching to everybody. And Scripture says in verse 2 that he was teaching them many things in parables. Now, a parable, one person has said, is an earthly story with a heavenly message. It's something like an allegory. Uh, the only thing with an allegory is most of the time everything in an allegory has significance to it. A parable, sometimes everything has significance. And then there are sometimes with a parable, there's just one main thought in it. But basically, Jesus uses parables. He takes stories from everyday life and he shares that, that story to uh, get a spiritual message across to those who hear him. And in this particular parable, Jesus is talking about a sower who is going forth to sow seeds on the earth. And uh, he speaks here of this sower in verse 3. He says, a sower went out to sow. Now, what's interesting is that this sower is going to sow seed on every type of soil imaginable. He sows the seed indiscriminately, but yet Jesus describes four types of soils that the seed falls on and how the, how it re, and how the seed responds or how the soil responds to the seed. Let's look at it. First, Jesus says that the seed is sown on the path, verse 4. As he sowed, some fell along the path. Now, understand that the path here was a path that was frequent, frequently walked on, frequently treaded upon, and it was beaten down, and it was hard. There was no topsoil. And, uh, you know, growing up, living up a holler, uh, I had my bike trails. Do you know what would happen on my bike trails? It would be as hard as pavement. There'd be no grass growing on it. There'd be nothing on it. Why? Because going over it over and over and over again would harden it down. Well, what happens if you put seed on a path like that? Well, Jesus says what happens is this. That the seed doesn't even get in the soil. doesn't even get in the ground. But the birds come and they devour it. It doesn't even penetrate. And so birds come and they eat it up. The second ground that he uses is rocky ground. He sows the seed in rocky ground. Now, Jesus describes the rocky ground like this. He says it did not have much soil. Ground in the Middle East and Israel is, is notoriously known for having a thin layer of topsoil and underneath hard limestone. And you know what would happen if you sow seed in that? Well, immediately that seed will penetrate, but it will not take root. Uh, it will grow a shoot. It will have some greenery, but there is no depth to it. And that's what Jesus says here happens with this. He says immediately it sprang up. But since it had no uh, and since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. So because there was nothing for it to attach to, there was no depth to the soil, it immediately sprung up quickly. The sun came out and it withered away. And it died. Then there's the third soil. It's the thorny ground, the thorny soil. Verse 7, Jesus said, Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. As a little boy, one of the things I hated doing was hoeing the garden. 
But guess what I did? I hoed the garden. Now, why do you hoe the garden? Well, you hoe the garden so the weeds don't take it over. If the weeds take it over, then you've wasted your time planting seed and trying to grow a crop. Well, Jesus says that there is some soil that the sower sows seed in, and amongst the seed is thorns and briars. And so as that seed germinates and as the plant starts to grow, the thorns and the briars come, and they choke it out so that it does not yield grain. Now, this is key. So far, we've had no soil. We've had stony soil. We've had shallow soil. And then we've had no other fancy word to come up with it other than crowded soil. That's, that's the, the, the three types of soil he sows in so far. And in each instant, the seed does not grow to yield a harvest. There is no harvest. There is no fruit. But there is a fourth soil. And that fourth soil is good soil. Because in verse 8, he says, Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the difference in this is that this soil produces grain. Grain comes forth from this. You don't have, you, you don't, it, it endures the sun, it endures other things, and it grows all the way to producing fruit. Now, what type of fruit does it produce? Well, it produces grain. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Now, the fold here is a reference to the number of heads on one grain uh, that the seed would produce. And most of the time, on average, a fold was between seven and eight heads. Seven and eight. Jesus here speaks of this ground yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Astronomical yields. It, and it's evidenced that this yield was a supernatural yield. That something's going on here that causes this soil to produce a yield that is far greater than one could ever imagine. It's called good soil. So this is the story Jesus shares. He tells the parable. Now we move to the meat of the sandwich. From the telling of the parable, we would expect Jesus to go to the explanation of it, but he doesn't. He then goes to describing the purpose of parables. Now look in verse 10 through 12 closely. Look what happens. First words of verse 10. And when he was alone, what's he do here? He's no longer in the ship. He's no longer preaching to the crowd. He's by himself. The large crowd is gone. Okay? Now look what happens. Those around him With the 12, ask him about the parables. Now, you have a small group of people. The 12 disciples and those with the disciples come to where Jesus is at and they ask him about the parables. This is kind of reminiscent of what we saw in the last chapter. You see a division takes place. The last chapter, Jesus was in a house. Uh, His earthly family was on the outside. And they were making demands of Jesus, but Jesus was on the inside with his true family who who believed in him. Uh, You had the insider-outsider 
dichotomy that takes place in the last chapter, you find the same thing here. Except the big crowd is outside. The small crowd comes to where Jesus is at. Uh, a picture of, of, of Jesus being with his true family because the statement, those around him, is the same statement back in chapter 3, verse 34, where Jesus in the house looking about at those who sat around him. It's the same phrase. So Jesus here is with his intimate, inner spiritual family in this passage. Don't miss that. And they've got a question. Here's the question. What do you mean by these stories? What do you mean by these parables? What's the meaning of these parables? And I'll be completely honest with you that what Jesus says after this, it's hard to swallow. It's one of those hard sayings of Jesus. This is one of Jesus' classic clear the pew sermons, okay? Uh, Every time the crowd got too big, Jesus would preach something and the crowd would dwindle away and they would vanish away. Because they could not handle the hard saying. Well, this is the hard saying that Jesus gives to them when he answers them. And basically, he explains why he uses parables. And he does so with three headings. First, I want you to see, he speaks of a gracious gift. Verse 11. And he said to them, to you. Now, who is the you? The you is his disciples and those around them, those around him. That is, his true spiritual family. To you has been given. To you has been given. That is in the passive voice, which means the you is not actively doing something. Someone is doing something to the you. Who's the one doing something to the you? It's God. It's Christ. What is he doing? He is graciously giving them something that others have not been given. What is that? That is the meaning of parables. He's telling them, I'm going to give you something right now. It's to you. I'm giving it to you. They don't have to connect the dots. They don't have to figure it out. They don't come come to it by natural means. No, Jesus is giving this to them. Does he give it to the entire crowd? No, he gives it to them. But also, he speaks of a glorious theme. All right, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. So immediately we see something here. One, we see that what Jesus is getting ready to tell them is a secret. Now understand that the word secret is not something that you tell somebody and tell them not to tell anyone else in the New Testament. It's a, it's a mystery. It is a truth that has been previously concealed in the Old Testament that is now being revealed through Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so what Jesus is saying is this, I am going to tell you something that has not been revealed before, something that the prophets did not understand, although they spoke about it, something that Moses didn't understand, something that the Old Testament tells, but the writers of it did not clearly see. And it's about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God through Jesus Christ. And that is what the Old Testament hope and expectation was. That the kingdom of God would break into this sin-cursed world, would overthrow all human government, and God would rule and reign over his people and he would make all things new. 
That's what the kingdom of God was supposed to do in their theology. They saw that that stone that was hewn out of a mountain without hands in the book of Daniel that came and crushed all the kingdoms of the world. That's what they expected. So when they heard that the kingdom of God is at hand and they heard that Jesus was healing the sick and raising the dead and performing miracles, they said, this is the kingdom. It's coming. It was to come in power. It was to come with force. But Jesus says, here's the secret. The kingdom is coming, not as a, not as a general with the sword, but the kingdom has come like a farmer with his seed. And furthermore, the vast majority of the people will resist the kingdom. They will reject the kingdom. Listen, first century Jews had no category for rejecting the kingdom. You don't reject the kingdom of God. You can't reject the kingdom of God. You can't resist the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, this is the secret to it. That when he comes initially the first time, he comes to establish the kingdom. And in order to truly establish it, it requires a cross. He doesn't come to set up a rule and a reign during his first coming. And so this is shocking to the disciples. You telling me that as you go out telling about people about the kingdom that it's just got a one in four return rate? <laughs> now that's not a hard number. But Jesus is telling us this just to show us that the vast majority of the people of this age will love this age more than him. Therefore, they will reject it. Now, what does he do here? After he tells them about this thing, he gives us the shocking purpose. Now, notice this carefully. And you've been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, you see the creation of the inside versus the outside, but for, to you has been given, but to those on the outside, everything's in parables. So that, this is a purpose statement. This is why he is telling them in parables. This is why he preaches in parables. And the next statement he's going to quote from Isaiah 6, 9. Isaiah 6, 9. Let me just say something about Isaiah 6, 9 real quick. It's that glorious chapter of Isaiah 6 where he sees the Lord high and exalted and lifted up. And the Lord says, who will go forth for me? And Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm a, I've got a potty mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then Isaiah's lips, his, his, his mouth is cleansed. And the Lord touches him with the fire from the coal on the altar. And then the Lord says, who will go forth from me? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. Then Isaiah says, how long do I go? And the Lord said, well, I'll tell you how long. You go and preach until there's nobody left. Go and preach until the houses are gone. Go and preach until everything's gone. And oh yeah, by the way, Isaiah, when you go and preach, you're not going to have many converts. Because they'll hear you, but they won't perceive it. They'll, they'll see you, but they won't understand it. I've blinded their eyes. I've given them eyes that they can't see. I've given them ears that they cannot hear. But go preach, Isaiah. Go preach. How's that for comfort for your ministry? <laughs> but that's exactly what Jesus does here. He says, here's why I preach to them in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest, unless 
They, who's the they? Those outside should turn and be forgiven. So perceiving and understanding leads to what? It leads to repentance and it leads to forgiveness. And Jesus says, I'm preaching to them, that crowd out there, in parables, lest they turn and be forgiven. I told you, this is a hard saying of Jesus. Very hard saying of Jesus. But what is so interesting is this fits the parable and the crowd perfectly. Uh, it, 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 it ties into what is going on here. The entire crowd hears the parable and they see Jesus, but they don't perceive him. The entire crowd hear Jesus, but they do not understand. Why? He did not do for the big crowd what he did for those who were around him. And that was, he did not give it to them. They heard, but they didn't understand. They saw, but they did not perceive. Why? I don't know. But I know this. Romans 9, 15, and 16 is as true as John 3, 16. That as he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on the one who wills or the one who exerts, but on God who shows mercy. So what we have here is the purpose of of the parables. And then the text moves thirdly to the explanation of the parables. Again, he is still talking to those inside with him. And he said to them in verse 13. Them. And he starts explaining it. And he begins by telling us exactly what the seed is. He says in verse 14, the sower sows the word. That's what he's saying here. The sower sows the word. So whatever the seed is, we know that it represents the word, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what has Jesus done up to this point? He shared it with everyone, told everyone. But now he's also told us something else. He tells us exactly what the soils are. The soils represent people. The soils represent the types of people who hear the word. And we've already seen these people in Mark. There's a purpose. They're in the crowd. So what do the soils represent? Well, first, it represents hard hearts. That's the path. Verse 15, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Here's a picture. That hardened path that's been trodden on, whenever you sow seed, Immediately, birds come and they pluck away that seed and they steal it before it even has a chance to penetrate. And here, Jesus says Satan acts like a bird. Now, we oftentimes think about Satan as being a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But I'll tell you where he does his best work. Not as a roaring lion, but as a stealthy bird. (laughs) 
who watches as the seed is being sown. And as soon as the seed is sown and it hits a hard heart, what does he do? He comes and he eats it and he takes it away and he destroys it. It is a heart that is so hardened to the gospel that the gospel doesn't even penetrate it. And we've already seen this crowd in Mark, haven't we? We see this crowd in the scribes and in the Pharisees who hear Jesus preach and teach. Who watch Jesus perform miracles. And do you know what their hard hearts have to say about Jesus? He's possessed with the devil. And by the prince of devils, Beelzebub, he cast out devils. The word doesn't even penetrate the Pharisees and the scribes. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. Now, does that keep them, does that keep Jesus from sharing the word? No, not at all. Understand this. The same sun that melts the, the, the wax hardens the clay. And so as the word is going forward, it has a hardening effect on this group of people. But then we see not just hard hearts, we see shallow hearts. That is, rocky soil. Look what he says in verse 16. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Here is someone who has an initial emotional response To the word, it appears as if they have received the word. It looks like they're doing good. If you judge them off of that initial response, you would say, oh, they believe. But they don't last. Matter of fact, they don't last long at all. They dwell for a little time, and then just as soon as something pops up that tests their faith, their faith fails because their faith is not real. It was a Wednesday night, probably about 12, 13, 15 years ago, something like that. Somebody came in here, and uh, I'd known them before, and uh, preached on a Wednesday night, and she came down the aisle, wanted to be baptized immediately after that, and uh, made a profession of faith, and she was cutting off the shine ever was, and wanting to make a, wanting to be baptized that night, and so I was like, all right, we'll go. So we, we didn't have a baptistry, so we went down to the river, got out, baptized her, and um, haven't seen her since. Well, not at church anyway. I have seen her since, but not at church. And I can see her and she'll go to the opposite end of the store. Uh, it, it, it's one of those things. I don't know. But, but I thought, I've, I've, I've looked at her before and prayed about my attitude. I thought I should have held you under until you bubbled that night. I mean, it was cold. But you see that more than once. You see it on several occasions. People will come and they'll have a big emotional reaction there is no root to it and it does not last we see this in the majority of this crowd this is the crowd that Jesus is going to feed with a little boy's lunch 5,000 people and you know what they think this is the king we want we live in a desert if he can feed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch we'll never be hungry we will never have any want they loved him until Jesus started preaching and when Jesus starts preaching in John 6 what does he say Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the Bible says immediately, many of them started falling away. And it dwindled down to where there was just a few left that Jesus even turned to Peter and he said, Will you also go? Peter said, Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
So what happens is this initial crowd thinks the king is here. He can feed us and they emotionally receive him. But when difficulties come and when the truth arises, they do not stay. That's a shallow heart. But then there's a crowded heart as well. Look in verses 18 and 19. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They're those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This group of people are like the Herodians. We've read about the Herodians in Mark chapter 3, who they hated the Pharisees and the scribes, but because of their mutual hatred for Jesus, they've come together. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were a spiritual group. The Herodians was a political group. They had attached themselves to that playboy, Herod, and they had gotten a little taste of power, and they wanted to be close to Herod. Jesus was a threat to that, so they thought, let's kill Jesus. What happened with the Herodians? They heard Jesus preach. They saw Jesus perform miracles. But what stopped them from believing What was it that caused them, the word, not to take root in their life? Part of it was the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. It had so gripped their heart that it had choked out the word. We've seen all of these people thus far in Mark. And there are many people who still feel the same way when it comes to the gospel. They love this world. They love the things in it. They love their flesh more than the gospel. And so when the gospel is preached, it chokes out the word of God. They are like Demas who had forsook Paul having loved this present world. It's a crowded heart. But then there is the fourth soil. It's the good heart. And that is the good soil. And by good, I, doesn't, I don't mean that the person themselves are, are good, that the people themselves are good. But notice in verse 20. He says, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. What do they do? Well, they hear the word. It's the same word everybody else heard. They accept the word. And the difference between this fourth soil and the other soils is they bear fruit. Now, the word accept means to embrace. It means to believe. It means to receive in a friendly way. Uh, It's the same word that is used in, in Acts 15. When there's a controversy in the early church about whether or not a person has to be circumcised in order to be saved, Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to speak to the apostles and the elders about the question. And they didn't know how they would be received. But Acts 15 says that the apostles and elders welcomed them in. It's the idea of a friendly welcome. And what he says here about the word, about the seed, is that whenever it is preached in good soil, they accept it. They welcome it as you would welcome a friend. They receive it. And as a result, it bears fruit. Some 60-fold, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Now, this is the parable, the meaning behind it, and the interpretation of it. So what are we to make of it? Well, I just want to give you quickly four observations from the text. The first observation I want you to see is this. 
the word must be shared with everyone. You share the word with everyone. Jesus shared the word with everybody. All right? I think sometimes Reformed folks are scared to death to share the gospel with a non-elect. <laughs> it's almost like, should we do it or shouldn't we do it? But let me, don't do that. We share the gospel with everyone. Spurgeon said the elect don't have an E written on them, so we preach the gospel to everybody. All right? That's our responsibility. It's not our responsibility to, to, to make the seed grow. It's not our responsibility to do any of that. It's our responsibility to share the word of God with everyone with no discrimination about whether they are hard soil, rocky soil, stony soil, good soil. We sow the word of God with everyone. But secondly, I want you to see this. That perseverance reveals the authenticity of faith. It reveals it. What do I mean by that? Well, what does the rocky soil have in common with the thorny soil? I mean, the path is definitely, it doesn't even penetrate. But the rocky soil and the thorny soil have an initial response, but it doesn't last. All right? The... the the rocky soil springs up immediately, but because there's no depth, the sun scorches it and it dies. The seed that's sown among the thorns grows up probably a little bit larger than that of the rocky soil, but because of the crowd, because of the distractions, it chokes it out and it does not take root. But what happens with the good soil? It grows. It bears fruit and it continues. Now listen, a mark of true saving faith is perseverance in faith, continuing in faith, not falling away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, we, we are not saved because we endure, but enduring gives evidence that we have saving faith because the faith that God gives is enduring faith. It perseveres. Jude 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That is a command to persevere. A command to continue. A command to go. It is our responsibility to continue. Now understand that persevering is not perfection. Saints who persevere fall along the way. Saints who persevere they have trouble. Saints who persevere, they have moments where their faith is high and they have moments when their faith is low. Perseverance is not always living on cloud nine. Perseverance is not always being victorious. But perseverance is about repenting of sin. It's about following Jesus in the difficulties and in the good times. Persevering is about continuing and we're commanded to do it. And persevering is a work of God. Here's why it reveals the authenticity of our faith. Because Jude says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of glory and with joy. Do you notice what Jude does? Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. All right, and God's the one who keeps you from stumbling. They seem to be contradictory, don't they? But here's the deal. God keeps me from, or I keep myself in the love of God because God, the one who's able to keep me from stumbling, has given me faith that comes from him and it will not stumble and fail finally and completely. 
Therefore, if my faith fails, what am I to conclude? That I was saved and I lost it? No. No. That I was one of the other three grounds. (laughs) And it didn't take root. And the faith that I had was not real. Okay? That's the point. Perseverance, it reveals the authenticity of our faith. Third observation I want you to see. Good soil produces different degrees of fruitfulness. I'm glad he didn't say that every single seed that was planted in the good ground came up a hundredfold, a thousandfold, a millionfold. He goes 30-fold, 60-fold, a hundredfold. But here's what's remarkable about, about it. You remember what I told you, that what a normal yield was between seven and eight heads of grain per seed? 30 is still remarkable. 30 is still supernatural. 30 is still a work of God. 60 is phenomenal. A hundred out of this world. What does that mean? I think what it means is this. Is that if we're not careful, we will judge other Christians or we will judge ourselves based on the fruitfulness of other Christians. And we would say if so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so don't do A, B, C, and D uh, this way, uh, the way I think they ought to, then, then I don't know if they're saved or not. There's a danger that we become legalistic as we help each other along, so to speak. But don't put other believers in this box to where we all have to have this, this, this same uniform fruit-bearing, so to speak. Because every believer that is saved bears fruit. Every believer. If you don't bear fruit, you're not a believer. Why? Because Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And it's not of works unless we should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. What does that mean? It means that the God who saves us by grace who saves us by faith, is the same God who ordains that we bear fruit. We bear fruit. And so good soil does produce fruit, although there are different degrees of fruit that are produced. And then fourthly, finally, good soil is the product of God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace. Let me ask you something. What's the natural response of a pat of a beaten down path to having seed thrown on it. It's for the seed not to even penetrate and the birds deed it. What's the natural result of throwing a seed into on top of shallow soil? Well, it'll spring up immediately, but it'll not come to fruition. It'll die because there's no depth of soil. What's the natural response of planting seed in a weedy path? The weeds take over, right? And uh, the, the seed dies. It doesn't last. Well, what's the difference between all those grounds and the good ground? What is the difference? Well, the good ground hears the word, accepts the word, and bears fruit. What is the difference? Five words. Five words in verse 11. To you has been given. Do you know who the good ground is in this picture? The good ground is the apostles and those 
who are with them. The good ground are those who hear the word, accept the word, and bear the fruit. And why, why do people hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit? Because like the disciples in verse 11, it has been given to them by a sovereign act of God. We don't just figure out the gospel one day and say, oh, I think I'd like to believe that. We don't connect the dots and then one day it it makes sense. No, God opens up our eyes. We go from just merely seeing to perceiving. We get it. We go from just hearing it to understanding it. And what happens when we hear it and understand it and see it and perceive it, we turn and we are forgiven. That is the natural result of believing and trusting and having the seed planted in good ground. You have to prepare ground and hear what has happened is the sower has sowed the seed and given the understanding and opened the eyes and opened the minds. What this means is when it comes to my salvation and it comes to me being saved, one person deserves the credit. One person gets the glory for it. I can't go around thinking, you know what, I'm good crown, so guess what, I'm better than the others. Absolutely not. No, the one who gets the glory is the one who says to you has been given. It's the one who has given us that revelation through his word and through the gospel. So maybe you're here today and you say, well, Brother Justin, what about me? I, I don't know Jesus Christ. I'm not a believer. Which ground am I? My answer to you is I have no idea, but I know this. We preach the gospel to everybody. And I know this, regardless of what you might be thinking, regardless of anything, if you will hear the gospel, that Jesus Christ was the virgin-born Son of God, he came to this earth, he lived a sinless life, he died in the place of sinners on the cross of Calvary, he was buried, and three days later he arose victoriously over sin, death, hell, and the grave. If you hear that, if you will accept that, If you will welcome that, as you would welcome a friend into your house, you will welcome the gospel into your heart, and you will trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today. If you will hear it, if you will accept it, I promise you this, it will bear fruit. And the first fruit it will bear is that of turning from your sins, repentance. That of forgiveness, being forgiven of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And so today I ask you this. Will you believe the gospel? Will you believe the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ? The sower has sown this morning. The word of God has been preached. Will you allow the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world, to choke out the word today? Or are you going through a problem that is scorching you and it, 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 it's, it's causing you to not hear? Well, beloved... If you will hear, if you will accept, you'll be saved today. Let's pray.